0: Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. During an extraordinary online event last week, decision makers at Health Canada, responsible for regulating nicotine vaping products, delivered a presentation to explain how vaping regulations are decided, drafted, and developed. The webinar, organized by the vaping advocacy group Rights for Vapors, sought to provide perspective and insight into Health Canada's proposed national flavor ban. Joining us today for reaction to the event, our hosts Maria Papayawanu-Dewick from Rights for Vapors and Christina Zidus from Quebec-based vaping rights group, CDVQ. Thanks ladies for coming back on the show. Thank you. Christina, first off you to you, top line, what did you think of the webinar? Well,
1: like I said, during the webinar, at the end of the webinar, it- was clearly a very frustrating process for a lot of people to listen to because they essentially just repeated every argument that was in the original um canada gazette publication um so there was no real new info um and um and the questions that were submitted let's just say that they were very uh unprecise imprecise and very broad in their responses so there's Obviously, um, dissatisfaction, I think, by many people uh, with the answers that they got. But on the, on the positive side, this is something that Health Canada has never done. And so that's testament to the incredible effectiveness of the campaigns that we've been waging. I think that we've been forcing their hand a bit. I think that they're starting to feel the pressure. And I think for me, that's the, um, the victory that that webinar represented.
0: And Maria, what did you think top line? We've lost your audio, Marina, Maria.
2: Oh, can you hear me?
0: We can now. Marina. Sorry. I did for a second. Yeah. Sorry, Maria.
2: Okay. That's no problem. Uh, I, first of all, I was just so happy. It actually went through, like, I'll be honest. I was like, oh my goodness, maybe they're going to cancel last minute. Like I was just waiting. And as soon as, you know, the, the webinar went live, I was like, okay we've cracked open the door. And at the end of the day, was it exactly what we wanted? No. To me, it was step one of continuing to build something where we can start pushing to get stronger responses to the questions. I think for a first time, it was a very detailed about how the process happens. Um, I think the answers were wishy-washy. Like, you know, they weren't precise for the, the specific questions, but I don't think Health Canada, and this is where I can, like, you know, I'm the one that emailed and said, please do this. I should have been more um, upfront and explained the, the knowledge base, how informed many of the people that are going to go on this, how experienced they are, how well-read, how well-versed. And I think this is just a great, first of all, There's going to be a next one. That's the way I see it. And the next one will be better. And the goal about all this is to have a group of consumers that will be talking with Health Canada like any other drug out there that is regulated that will give feedback and their voices will be heard to shape future regulations. Vaping has been solely regulated without the voice of the consumer at any of, and I hate using the term, the table, but that's what it is. So you know what, whatever it needs to do to get to that end goal of having consumers at that table, I'm going to continue to be part of that. I won't be at that table. I'm not considered a consumer, but I hope people like the Marianne Burt's, the Janine's, everyone we see on Twitter will have an opportunity to be there. So to me, I thought it was the fact that it happened was wonderful and it was amazing. And for full disclosure, I take things so personally, I was like, oh my God, I failed when I saw everybody complaining, but I did take a step back and I realized this isn't about me, Drop my ego. I would have had the same frustration, absolutely.
0: And that's good perspective, I think, for everyone, including yourself. Now, not that I need to remind everybody here, um, but for any viewers that are watching live or obviously um, in the taped version that we'll be pushing out there, Keep in mind that there's been a lot of regulatory action that's been going on over the last two years, but it's really the flavor ban is pretty much, you know, Damocles' sword, you know, coming down on the vaping industry in Canada. So let's let's dive in because that's really the context of what's going on here. If Health Canada hadn't spent any time, uh, you know, seeking you know, dialogue uh, to a large extent with more of the general public, which kind of what this webinar is, is very public-facing. It wasn't just advocacy groups and so forth. So what is it about their need to do that? I'm hoping that we might be able to find, you know, glean a little bit of that out. So we've prepared uh, some soundbite collages here from the webinar. We're not going to replay the whole webinar, but some, some good chunks that we can share with the audience and then talk about. Let's listen to the first one.
3: Welcome to this webinar on the regulatory process, how vaping regulations are decided, drafted, and developed. Bienvenue à ce webinaire sur le processus réglementaire, comment les réglementations sur le vapotage sont décidées, rédigées et développées. So my name is Sonia Johnson. I'm the Director General of Health Canada's Tobacco Control Directorate.
4: Sure. Hello, everyone. Great to be with you today. Uh, my name is Laura Smith. I'm the Director of Tobacco and Vaping Policy. Je suis la Directrice de la Politique sur le Tabac et les Produits de oh,
5: Bonjour à tous et à toutes. Mon nom est Denis Chouinière, Directeur du Bureau de la Réglementation des Produits du Tabac au sein de la Direction de la Lutte au Tabagisme. Denis Chouinière, Director of the Tobacco Products regulatory Office in the Tobacco Control Directorate
3: so we know that there has been a, a rapid increase in youth vaping uh, that we've seen not only in Canada but that has also been seen in the United States and so While we recognize that there's no single factor uh, that has been responsible for driving that observed increase, um, there is research in in this area that identifies the availability of a variety of desirable flavors as one of the key factors uh, responsible for this increase. So with the proposed regulations uh, for vaping flavors, Um, that we just recently consulted on, uh, it's expected to contribute to making these products less appealing to youth. Um, At the same time, the the proposed regulations would still maintain access to some flavor categories like tobacco, mint, and menthol. Uh, And the reason for doing this was to have uh, flavors on the market available for adults who smoke and who wish to transition who have already transitioned uh, to vaping. And we do uh, want to continue efforts to help people who smoke to quit and remain remain smoke-free. We at Health Canada, we're we're aiming to take a balanced approach um, that is really to provide access to adult consumers while also taking uh, necessary steps to limit the appeal uh, of these products to youth
0: limit the appeal of these products to youth and strike a balance now strike a balance is exactly what health canada was saying five years ago
1: yeah that's right and uh five years ago flavors were part of the equation um obviously i mean you didn't ask this brent but i'm gonna go ahead and uh, do my spiel on this uh, the clip is I think we would all agree, uh, vast oversimplification of the the reasons why some youth um, take up vaping, right? What we're doing is we're completely ignoring Um, who these youth are in terms of their risk profiles, the risk factors that they already have. So what we're seeing is that uh, smoking rates among uh, minors, uh, youth have have, like completely collapsed in the last five to 10 years um, everywhere in Canada. Um, And a large part of that is driven by the availability of vaping. So youth who would have previously, previous to vaping being available on the market have been smokers are now vaping instead. Now, obviously, it goes without saying that nobody wants youth to be either smoking or vaping. But if they were going to be smokers, then vaping is clearly the better option from a public health perspective. And I think that element is is completely ignored uh, in Health Canada's presentation.
0: Yeah, Maria, what are your thoughts on that first opening clip? One
2: hundred percent. They did do this. They skimmed the top. They didn't deep dive on anything um, I think to me, I'm going to say this again, it's an opportunity to go back and say we want deeper questions. We want co- consumers to be part of this process. We want consumers to do a QA. and um, I think there's a lot out there. And I think we would just have to dissect it and do it into parts. like to talk about the youth vaping epidemic. That's more of a debate where um, things, but I do agree that I think they gave the bare minimum. 100%. But I'm looking at using that as we need to look at that as a jumping off point to, to continue to try and have them engage with us at our level of understanding. So, you know, maybe they spoke to us as if, you know, like this basic here, but we're a lot of us up there were up there in that call. So it's time to like, you know, up the bar, up that conversation and have a little bit more of a challenging and I think something like that can be challenging is I don't know I don't know if a public forum is that place or having doing what they do for um, safe injection sites when, when they're talking about cannabis, get the end user in there and to me that is the biggest push is they have a scientific advisory board they need to have an end user advisory board because the science is only as good as the people who are creating the science. Like, you can't have science if you're not talking to seniors. You can't have science if you're not talking to smokers. And if we have that voice and we can even say, it's like, where are the studies you're using for end users? Why aren't you, you know, using? Um, spending more money on that? All the money is continuously being spent on youth epidemic. We're not looking at any of the other science.
0: Now, um, you, we're gonna find here that it was fairly easy to pull out some juicy clips that, that might show some hope around Health Canada. And I do agree that there is a lot of hope in having Health Canada do this. I mean, I, I actually, I'm a bit stunned by what their motivations are for participating and what that might say in terms of the potential pushback they've been getting, uh, not just from consumers and industry on the flavor ban, but also to potentially from colleagues. I know that you know everyone knows we interview all these you know, highfalutin researchers all the time, and I'm not gonna mention who, but several in the last four to six months, like many, have been commenting, some on air, but a lot of it off, that they don't understand what Health Canada is doing, and they've been reaching out. You know? So there's been international pressure that's been coming down on Health Canada during this time, I just wonder if any of that has something to do with it. A couple of those ju- juicy nuggets, this one of oh, them. Oh, wait,
2: before you say something, I want to like reiterate what Christina said off the top. The biggest, one of the largest pressure is the consumer pressure. They, they repeated 25,000 unique submissions. And I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again, that wouldn't have happened. And I don't know if this human being is above me in your feed, but the, the human being above me, which is Christina, um, one badass human, human, she really pushed, she saw all the reasons why none of the, the submissions were lumped together in the past. And she pushed to create something unique. And that was mentioned as well. So we, whatever reason this happened, we can't negate or forget the fact that consumers spoke up across this country in large numbers, whether it was, and especially those, um, the feedback, but we're looking at petitions, we're looking at emails being sent, we're looking at tagging Twitter, sending emails. So like, let's not forget the consumers that have really stepped up and spoken out.
0: Absolutely. All right. So here's a a short clip from Sonia Johnson uh, regarding the impact uh, on people's health with regard to vaping.
3: So I wanted to be very clear here that there have been zero deaths reported as a result of vaping related illnesses in Canada. Um, we have seen a small number of issues involving vaping products, but as was mentioned earlier, um, we're still learning more about how vaping affects health in general, um, and the potential long-term effects of vaping remain unknown and continue to be, abs- continue to be assessed.
0: To the point that you made, uh, Christina, uh, right off the bat, the premise behind all of this regulatory action is this teen so-called epidemic, but that was in 2019. And it seems like, you know, health Canada's frozen in time. That certainly was clear to me watching this webinar is that it's like everything moved to 2019. And then from there, then on, that's it. That's they're not taking any new data into account. Did you get that sense?
1: Yeah, I absolutely did. I, I, I think that, and just to kind of add on to that, what keeps getting lost in the conversation, and I think it's shocking, is that tobacco is the leading cause of preventable death and disease in Canada. There's literally nothing else that kills more people that's preventable. It's it's tobacco use. And uh, the number of Canadians that die every year is shocking. Uh, and it, um it uh, looms over and is far greater than other causes of death, like car accidents and um, murder and all the other things that you people tend to over uh, exaggerate in their minds. But in fact, it's tobacco use. And I think that's actually part of the normalization of tobacco related deaths and disease. They often talk about the renormalization of uh, smoking through the act of vaping. But I, we have no evidence of that because smoking rates keep dropping for all the age groups. But what we do have is the complete ignoring of uh, the devastating impacts that smoking does have uh, on our population. And I think that to me is unacceptable. Um, I I completely sympathize with not wanting to, uh, you know, just sit by and let things happen when it comes to kids uh, picking up vaping. But That's an education campaign. That's like you you do a good, proper education campaign. You make it a boring medical, uh, sorry, uh, harm reduction device that adults use who are former smokers. What could be simpler than that? Nobody wants to do that. But if you keep promoting like um, hysterical media coverage of exaggerated harms with regards to youth, um, all you do is make that Product a lot more appealing to youth who share those risk factors who are prone to risky behavior.
0: Maria, yes. Uh, well, I was hoping you might have something to add to that. That is uh, shocking that I would hand you the you know the mic and you've got nothing to say. So then um, let's well go ahead.
2: We're here. I'm going to say something. Um, I think I was at a meeting with you know the people who invented five x thirty five. Uh, They were all there applauding themselves because what they didn't, what wasn't mentioned was that we've hit below five by 35 in youth smoking. So those targets have been hit the five by 35. There's also um, a big movement to push, remove the word smoke and use nicotine. So, and you could hear it happening there was a big movement to um, lobby Health Canada to ensure that, you know, they're stricter on vaping and just offer not even mint. Um, so it looks like tobacco control has, you know, an alternative motive. And um, yeah, they, I don't know, the way I see it in the thing is, is you get rid of flavors, you increase smoking. And I think we need to have a proper study done. I think Health Canada should have looked at what the results were by the nicotine cap. And then taken a pause. But this was back to back to back. Um, it was disappointing. I think the biggest bombshell was zero people have died of vaping. Yeah. And it was and... just a full stop. There was no but. It was zero people have died of vaping. Uh, I'm very conscientious of the word, but Uh, being in recovery, we're told we're not allowed to say something and use the word, but when we apologize or make a statement because it negates everything that you say beforehand. So that's something that I'm always trying hard to pay attention when people are communicating with me. Um, They made that as a full stop. And that was probably the only question they answered um, precisely. Yeah, they
1: answered it precisely, but they didn't they don't do anything in terms of like clarifying that information no, to no, the general I, I, public. The, the work of the public health authorities should be to make that as clear as they did in the webinar to the public at large. So every time there's a new yeah. scare story about vaping, where is Health Canada in terms of highlighting that? They'll point to a, a paragraph on their website, but that's just not adequate. You know, like. um. And to bring up a a bit of an old story, for those of you who who might know this detail, you know, we've been waiting on a a list of relative risk statements for years. Those relative risk statements were promised to us by Health Canada years ago. And uh, not only have they not uh, happened yet, but uh, it's as if it never happened. They completely removed all mention of that from uh, the universe, from their website and everything. And it just doesn't exist anymore. Why? Why do that when you you acknowledge yourself that the public is like vastly misinformed about the relative risks of vaping versus uh, smoking?
0: And let's actually, I've got that Wait, uh, bite isolate.
2: Is a, oh, sorry, there is what, a court case though because someone actually sued Health Canada so they can sorry. never be removed. It might be removed from their website, mm-hmm. but right now they are waiting for, I don't know when, I think they got a court date and they're heading to court. They're collecting their affidavits And for the first time ever, once that becomes public, we'll understand where our government, where Health Canada stands when it comes to vaping in a very different perspective.
0: So I have, uh, it was Laura Smith, who is, I think, new to the file. Two months. uh, Two months. And this will be the first time that we've played her in in this episode. Let's take a listen.
4: We know that the public perception of health risks of vaping is somewhat muddled. Our own research through the 2019 Canadian Tobacco and Nicotine Survey found that a majority of Canadians thought that using a vaping device was either about the same as cigarettes in terms of harm or didn't know. So these responses show us as Health Canada that there is a continued need for public education in this area. We have this information on our website but evidently we have a bit more to do so that Canadians who smoke are aware that while vaping is not harmless it is less harmful than smoking cigarettes for those people who quit smoking and completely switch to vaping.
0: I think to the point here is that it's a great to say that in this kind of a webinar but if you aren't saying that over and over and over again to CBC and CTV and the Globe and Mail and the Toronto Star and the media that matters uh, over and over and over again. And every time um, a so-called vaping related lung illness popped up, I was really assuming as a Canadian who was u- utilizing a legal product that you know Health Canada would have seen that it was their duty to get out there in front of that and correct those misperceptions then.
2: Yeah, I still and I'm, say, oh, go ahead, Christina. Go ahead, Maria, go ahead. I, you know what, I still say, and I've written it in every single submission, you need to advertise and force the tobacco companies to put a little little doodad in the cigarette package that talks about vaping. I mean, to me, they have an entire market, another way to, an entire way to directly advertise or directly communicate um, the risk of vaping compared to smoking, the relative risk right there and get that message out. I mean, you know, in 2016 or 2017, they promised during the the hearings that they would spend $3.25 million about vaping to adults and they haven't done that. So we will see. We need to continue to push it. And so these are things that we're learning about where we can continue to have campaigns and continue to remind Health Canada, hey, you need to do better on this. You owned it. You owned, you owned it publicly. Now what are you going to do? Because you can't say that you dropped the ball or haven't done a good job without showing that this is how I'm going to fix it. That's just, you know, apology 101. Yeah. And what I was going to say
1: is just that let's not, you know, let's not be naive health Canada knows quite well how to run a public education campaign because they are doing exactly that with regards to youth vaping. Um, They know how to spend that money. They know how to create the, the visuals, how to push it through social media, how to get it out there, but they're not doing it for vaping, even though they acknowledge in this webinar that it's, uh significantly less harmful than smoking so these are political choices they're not it's not about like a, a degree of incompetence or whatnot these are political choices there's there's a um we're, what we're looking at is really a clash of ideologies right uh harm reduction is accepted in many other public health uh, issues but sadly the, the there are groups in in canada who very much oppose harm reduction in in when it comes to tobacco use and uh completely ignore the fact that the very best methods that have been put forward to date um, have a hard time reaching five or six percent uh efficacy like uh, success rates uh for for smokers so they're not really offering options to smokers um that are reasonable and and that work vaping can be twice if not more effective than uh than those options um so clearly smokers lives don't matter to the people who are pushing these anti-vaping campaign campaigns they have yeah. a very prohibitionist point of view and it's like quit or die as we say, and and that's all there is to it. And I, unfortunately those
2: people have a lot of influence when it comes to um, Health Canada.
0: Now, speaking of health- I, Oh, wait
2: a second. I, I'm sorry, I wanna say something before. I, I had an aha moment today when I was writing a tweet and I realized this, and I have been guilty of doing this. And here's the thing is that when we when we talk about people who smoke, we call them smokers they are not a noun they are a, they are participating in an action so i was literally writing this tweet and i said i saw a smoker the definition there is no definition of a smoker we like you know what i mean so we have some like i personally have work to do because it is people who smoke we are we are we are not our action
1: yeah that's actually Absolutely. a a very like uh um That's that's a perspective that's very much promoted by harm reduction activists. It's not uh, uh, drug users. It's people who use drugs. It's Uh, not yeah, and I yeah, because we're not
2: we we shouldn't be defined by an addiction. Um, But I've made a conscious like starting today because it was so weird. I'm writing this tweet and I'm like, no, I am not going to call someone a smoker. No, it is someone who smokes. Someone who is addicted to nicotine. Someone who is doing this like. Those are the words that I think I, I am personally going to make a better conscientious effort. And hopefully anybody that's reading this, don't refer to yourself as a former smoker. Cause I do that all. I've done that all the time. Let's refer to us as I used to, like I used to smoke, like let's keep it as a verb and forget this whole noun and definition of who we are, because you know what? We are all people who took a risk and took autonomy over our own decisions albeit that we've had every single obstacle thrown our way by the very public, the public health unit, the unit that has been begging us to stop smoking, begging us to stop smoking, giving us all these choices and all these people that are saying for decades they've worked so hard to try and get people not to smoke. What I realized, like, you know, no, you know what? We, we did it, we should be proud. And we need to continue to push on so we can all collectively work hard to give more people the choice and give more people access to information. And that should be coming out of Health Canada. And these are the things we need to start holding them accountable. I mean, their list is like an arm's length long, but we can only chip away at it one day at a time, one step at a time, right?
0: Internally in Health Canada, um, do you think that they're anti-vaping or pro-vaping uh, because there, I think there might be you know a struggle going on in Health Canada to some extent. Certainly, it seemed that they were a bit more pro-vaping back in 2016 and 17 and 18 than they are now. Um, I don't know if this is connected to this next clip I'm going to show, but we have Denis uh, Schwenar, uh next uh, from Health Canada to share. And one of the key aspects of this webinar was really talking about the process. And I think that's important. I want us to To make sure we stay on that because there is this process that's steamrolling uh down the tracks and i you know it feels like it's getting too late and so
5: we're going to get a little bit out of denis here if you look at the first principle here uh, it aims to protect and advance the public interest and support good government Uh, in this aspect protecting the health and safety of Canadians is obviously an area that cabinet wants to move forward with. Uh, So regulations made under the Tobacco and Vaping Products Act would fall here under this area of protecting the health. Second point is the regulatory process is modern, open and transparent. Now insist here on open and transparent. So there are obligations put on the government of Canada to make sure that uh, when there are regulations that are uh, in development, that it's communicated to the public and that the public interested, the, mainly the interested public is aware of these consultation and are given an opportunity to comment. Uh, third one is that uh, the, uh, there's, there's an expectation that uh, regulatory proposals are based on evidence. Uh, that includes also a robust analysis of costs and benefits and if applicable, assessment of risks. Finally, another point here that the cabinet has to weigh uh, is also whether regulations will support a fair and competitive economy, excuse me. And for example, here, uh, promoting economic growth, entrepreneurship, and innovation for the benefit of Canadians. So there are many, many, many steps that bureaucrats must go through when developing regulations. And uh, we've grouped them here just to facilitate discussions in in four areas. So first area that uh, we'll be seeing in a a few seconds on its own slide is about determining the role or the need for regulations. Uh, Once you've done this to help cabinet, there's a requirement to develop a regulatory impact analysis statement. And then there's a major, another major step is a step of drafting regulations and getting treasury treasury board approval. And then uh, the last steps include publication in Canada Gazette Part One, followed by consultation. And then, if cabinet decides so, there are uh, there's a final approval of the regulations. Parliament has decided yeah. that there are some provisions for which regulations can be made to support the legislation. Uh, The fact that there are such provisions in the legislation doesn't mean that the government needs to develop regulations in this area. What's key here is you have to identify an issue that warrants uh, intervention, regulatory intervention. So that's a main point here is, is there an issue and what is this issue? And if you've identified this issue, then an analysis you need to do is is it the right uh, issue for regulation? So, in the case of uh, the flavoring regulatory proposal, uh, there was an issue that was identified in 2008, further identified in uh, 2019, basically based on, uh, on the publication from the literature, but also surveys where we got information about the uh, youth uh, vaping, an increase, uh, dramatic youth uh, increase in youth vaping. And that was the start of uh, for us to identify the issue. Uh, Regulatory proposal was also developed because we thought that it was the best tool to be able to intervene.
0: So the best tool to intervene. I'm not certain about that.
1: Well, I mean, it's an explanation of why they've done what they've done, right? And I think it comes back to what we said earlier, which is, um, is the situation really um, uh, so severe that we're willing to sacrifice uh, a tool that could effectively like, reduce smoking rates among adults, right, um, uh, and for, for a small minority of youth who in all likelihood would have been smokers if vapors wasn't there um if if vaping wasn't there that's the thing right it's it's all about how you frame the problem to begin with so if you frame the problem as just like one of strict numbers and all these kids are starting to vape and oh my god we're so scared of that it would make sense in that sense for somebody to propose regulation like this but if you look at the broader picture you look at which youth are vaping how much they're vaping because the majority of them are just occasionally vapors at like a party or something like that, that's not a problem. I mean, it's not good, but it's not a problem. They're not becoming nicotine dependent or addicted. Um, It's regular uh, youth experimentation. It's part of growing up. Um, And then those who are frequent and and daily uh, users of vaping, well, they're the ones who share almost exactly the same profile risk as youth who used to smoke. So we're talking about, we're talking about parents who smoke, low income, mental health issues, uh, they partake in other risk be- risky behaviors, drinking alcohol, having sex, etc. cetera. Uh, so these are kids who would have been smokers if vaping wasn't around. It's not the flavors. Uh, if anything, the flavors are what's keeping them from becoming smokers. Um, so it's really like the height of irony, really, when you think about it, that they're willing to to jeopardize that um, out of a completely flawed, I think, analysis of the situation on the ground.
0: Now, I don't think it was a mistake, but he did say that they first identified this issue, teen use in 2008.
1: Right. I mean, they've been keeping tabs on it, obviously.
0: Yeah, no doubt. Maria, uh, one of the things that he mentioned was evidence-based. I mean, you know, (laughs) that, that, if it's evidence-based, then how come the current numbers aren't being used? I mean, I keep coming back to that. It just... I know,
2: and I wish they would answer those questions. Those are big questions, like what? how do you weigh the new evidence? I mean, we all know that, and this is public information, is that when someone did a deep dive into the regulatory analysis, like the regulatory impact analysis statement, we noticed that there were five scientists on there that most people believed, how would they say that it's a 20%, it's 20% safer than smoking or 80%. And three out of the, sorry, two out of those people that they say support our claim. And again, I'm not using the right words, came out and wrote a proposal to Health Canada, you know, saying that this flavor ban is wrong. So there's a, a lot more in there. There's a lot more inconsistencies. Um, there's a lot more that maybe we don't, like maybe they may not have came came out and said it, but there has to be a bigger reason why, you know, things aren't moving as quickly as the nicotine cap.
0: Um, well, and allow me to bring this up, like, we- in the regulatory analysis and the impact statement, they make an argument for the saving of lives because people die from vaping. That was the critical, you know, to the point where you're talking about that potential study or research that was mentioned in, in that one citation. So if if the director general of the Tobacco Control Directorate is publicly saying there have been zero deaths, then doesn't that gut? A portion of the benefit that they were hoping to get, you know, gain from uh, moving people off of flavors.
2: Well, yeah, I, I agree. I think we also need to look at is that the, I can never say her name, but the top dog, that's what I'm going to refer to her as um, recently joined health Canada. So I don't believe the nicotine cap and the flavor band came out during like within the short period of time that she was there at the realm that was being done. And if you look at the, the spectator, the people who were there um, talking to us, two out of the three were not there in health Canada in this role in 2020 or in 2019, when all this went down, only one person. And that's the Denis has been a consistent and Denis is a staunch supporter of you know tobacco control and like albeit like I mean all all the more power to him. I I I, I respect and value people's um, position just like I expect people to respect and value my position. You know, treat people the way you want to be treated. But we're looking at two d- two new set of eyes that have fallen up fallen on here since 2019, since this youth vaping epidemic. I don't know if you guys are gonna see me but I'm using air quotes on that one.
0: Well, I'll be right back, Dina Sackwell. And that's a good point. I wanna thank Select Vapes for supporting this episode, really helped make it happen. And thank you, Paul, and the people there. Um, all right, so let's, before we get too far, because I've got a couple more questions for you for you guys, just in terms of um, the webinar and in, in kind of the underlying issues. But first, before we do that, I've got Dini one more time and <laughs> yeah, but I mean, look, the fact of the matter is I really, as you were saying, Marie, and I'll echo that on on from my part here. I'm just looking for the clip number. Um, I think it's extremely important and very healthy that Health Canada is coming out and doing these things. And I really appreciate Denis also in, in his perspective. It's really important to understand the bureaucrat. And when you get a chance to actually see bureaucrats, you know, in their realm, but outside of it, because they're obviously stretched when they're, you know, talking in environments like this, I think that's really important. And so this is a really good clip. I'm not going to say anything more to set it up, but I think it's very interesting. So let's go to it.
5: The bureaucrats do not make the decision. We put together the material. We follow the guidance from Treasury Board Secretariat. They will have comments as the proposal is developed. Uh, but first, the package has to go to the minister, the Minister of Health. So the Minister of Health will decide if the, this package goes or not to the Treasury Board. So the minister, this, his office will be briefed, uh, will answer every question that he have. we'll talk about um what were the comments received from interested parties uh they may ask for further information or changes on the package sometimes but once they have the minister signs off on the package then it's submitted to the privy council office privy council office is like the department that supports cabinet and the prime minister and it's reviewed there before it goes to Treasury Board ministers for approval of the package. How the ministers uh, make their decision is basically looking at the regulatory impact analysis statement. Any other briefing material that the Treasury Board Secretariat will be will have asked. Uh, this is why it's very important to have a balanced regulatory impact analysis statement because. On the one hand, uh, in the case of uh, flavor restrictions here, the TB ministers will be interested to know, well, what is the public health problem that, uh, that needs to be addressed here? Uh, they will want also to see what's the evidence that uh, we have put together to support our analysis and the need for regulations. They will want also to see what the uh, uh, consultation has said, so the fact that the department consults it's not necessarily to decide whether or not the package goes forward or not it's to be able to show in the first hand what the minutes to the minister what the uh, impacted uh, canadians have to say about the regulatory proposal and it's going to be the same thing for the TB ministers uh, they want to see what all canadians have said uh, so those who are against the proposal why are they against it those who are for the proposal why they are for it. And there's also the cost and and, uh, benefits analysis that will help also balance all the key guiding principles that I mentioned earlier. So here are the two last steps, if you want, Uh, but there are many steps in between one and three here that you have. So pre-publication took place in June this year, uh, followed by a 75-day consultation. We are currently analyzing those 25,000 comments that we receive, most of them from nine letter writing campaigns, excuse me. Uh, if need be, there'll be uh, adjustments made to the proposal, changes, and then uh, the minister will have uh, to consider the regulatory package that will be put together. And uh, if, the, uh, if the minister decides that this goes ahead, then we'll have to go to Treasury Board, the ministers again, uh, for decision. Uh, the step between one and three here could take anywhere from typically six months to 24 months or even longer from past uh, uh, past uh, experience.
0: So, uh, Christina, first with you, and then Maria, I see that you've got something. So, Christina, it sounds like that there are This could take a lot longer than we think. Is that? Did you get the same thing there? Your audio. Sorry. I
2: think you're muted,
0: Christina. Yeah, she might have been. Might be muted. Uh oh. Uh, Didn't happen here.
2: Look on your Skype. Are you muted? Can you hear me now?
0: Yes, we can hear you now.
2: Okay. Cause
1: I, I tried to use a headset, but it wasn't working. Sorry. Oh, that's okay. Apologies. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I, definitely have that impression. I think that, uh, again, I think that's the outcome of our campaign. I mean, 25,000 submissions from consumers, all saying that they're against it. It's going to raise some eyebrows. I'm, I'm not entirely sure that that's the usual, uh, par for course when it comes to these types of public consultations. I'm, I'm relatively certain that's uh, uh, pretty high. <laughs> mm. So um, I'm thinking it's had the impact and they're probably doing a bit of a rethink at this point. At least that's what I hope. Of course, we don't know uh, anything is a guess at this point, but that that's my
2: impression. Maria? My impression is exactly the same. <laughs> However, I saw Easter eggs. I saw Easter eggs dropped in for all of us right across this presentation. Um, This one was a key. He stressed the Minister of Health. He kept stressing the regulatory impact analysis statement. We have enough data to be able to do this. There is nothing stopping any single consumer from writing to the Minister of Health, either Caroline Bennett or Jean... Is it Duclos? Did I get that right? Duclos? Jean-Yves Duclos. Uh, Jean-Yves Duclos, which I really want to tell everybody that Christina marched her but right up to his office during Vape Tour 2021. And you know what? She went in there fearless and just spewed everything for vaping, which was honestly, that was kind of cool that we did that. And he ended up being minister of health. I mean, you know, whatever you go there, there's going to be a memory somewhere down the road when this becomes a bigger and bigger issue for his office. Um, I think We need to figure out how to communicate in a respectful and impactful way with um, the ministers because it literally seems like it all lies in their hands. Um, we do know that some people have written to the Minister of Health. We're going to get those up on the Rights for Vapors website um, to be able to share and hold them accountable. That's kind of the only way that we can be participate in this process is if you do write something to one of the ministers about your journey, there's nothing wrong with saying, I'm afraid of this flavor ban. This is what's going to happen because of this flavor ban. You can write to your Minister of Health or Minister of Addictions um, and Mental Health it's either Caroline Bennett or Jean-Yves Duclos. I think I mean, I'm going to get that eventually. Um, that to me was the biggest takeaway from it. The other takeaway was 25,000, um, 25,000. 25, he did say from various online campaigns, but that doesn't mean that every, they still have to read them because a, it was created for everyone to write a personal submission. And we saw so many of them come in through Quebec while we were on tour, where Christina took the time. She sat down. She encouraged people to write what they wanted to write. And there's nothing wrong with sending an email to these ministers, guys. Use your voice. It's so important. I don't believe that this will happen. Well, obviously, they did say it's not happening January 1st. So we know that. So we can kind of not be afraid of a flavor ban coming january 1st
0: uh, well let's uh, before we do that let's actually have um Sonia johnson tell us that because i it's a very short clip and i do have that right here and i think it's important to hear that from from the person in charge
3: one question that i've received before uh, that i just wanted to make sure that we we tackled here was in terms of timing uh there seems to be uh, a, a misconception that January 1st is when flavor restriction would come into place. I I saw a media article related to that. Um, So, um, as Denis pointed out in his presentation, there's a a multitude of steps that have to occur um, before um, publishing final regulations before they're implemented. So, just wanted to to clarify that January 1st isn't a a magical date uh, when, uh, um, when things may, you know, when restrictions may occur. Uh, so just to be clear, you know, we we just wrapped up the uh, consultations in early September. We're going through the analysis process, uh, and there is a, a number of steps that need to uh, to happen before uh, if should we get to that final uh, regulation.
0: Should we get to that final regulation?
2: Easter egg. I'm just, I guys, I'm sorry. I'm looking at all this. I'm not looking at they didn't answer the questions um, perfectly well. They they high level answered the question. I'm listening to like the things that they're saying. Um, that question wasn't part of it. They chose to put that question in. Um, the question was originally someone asked, "When is this flavor ban going to happen?" Um, I we we have come this far as as consumers, uh, as people who smoked, people who might to go back to smoking, people who have an addiction to nicotine, we've come this far with vaping and pushing back every step of the way by using our voice, by telling our stories and by literally pushing back. And there's nothing that should stop us. We have a new government. We obviously have a new um, group at Health Canada. Um, I do believe you asked that question. I do believe it's a mix of people at Health Canada People who see harm reduction and see tobacco harm reduction, and another group of people who don't see this as a suitable form of harm reduction. And what we need to do is we need to pile up that evidence for those team members that are, you know, vaping, like see the value of vaping. We need to continue to have those conversations. We need to continue to send those emails. We need to continue to, you know, sign the petitions. I'm like, you know, over 300 people registered and I'll be honest, like, cause we did it through Eventbrite only because we didn't have access to the link. And as a heads up, I'm going to apologize everybody. Eventbrite sent out emails whenever they felt like it. They didn't listen to the instructions. So I apologize if people got Eventbrite emails afterwards. Um, But We had over a hundred, I think it was 175 at one point, Christina, do you remember how many people were on that call? Like about 175 people from all walks of life. We had consumers on there, we had lobbyists on there. It was a big deal. You know what's gonna be the biggest deal is when we get that second webinar and where hopefully, fingers crossed, they'll engage with the people on the other side. And at the end of it, the long road down there that we have a standing committee of end users of electronic cigarette talking with Health Canada and having an impactful conversation with them and having an impact on future regulations. Like it's hard because it's not just you know, the pipes and, you know, the smoke-free physicians. There's tons of children's doctors that are probably lobbying Health Canada. There are, like, there's more people than just what we see as our enemies online. And I'm using enemies because technically all they want is a smoke-free world. And I wish they would understand that too. because so that's all we all want. We all want a world that's smoke-free. The only difference is, is that we we believe in getting there in, in different ways in a different path and vaping is our path. And these other people who want to smoke free world, they don't believe in vaping. They'd rather quit our way or die. And it's quite evident.
0: Well, and I, I'm, I'm going to throw my hat in on recreational nicotine user. Don't call me an addict. I'm not a smoker anymore. I'm a record. You know, I use nicotine. <laughs> so makes me happy. I enjoy it. It's pleasurable. Certainly with the flavors that I like. And, it, and trust me, I mean, we don't talk about the actual vaping, you know, much on this show, but let me just add my two cents to like getting vape mouth, right? Where if I didn't have flavors to go to, I mean, sometimes I just get so sick of a flavor and it's just inexplicable why that's the case might be something I've been vaping for two years. And then all of a sudden I just hate it. And then I'll go through like two, three weeks of being frustrated, finding a new flavor that really works for me as I'm switching around. I mean, I just, when, when it comes time to, you know, here's your ugly green goop flavor, you know, and take it. I feel like I'm in communist Russia. Well, yeah,
1: I mean, uh, kind of like, uh, Going on from what you just said, uh, Brant, that's definitely something that's uh, an important point to raise. And also, like, with regards to in my personal case, you know, um, I... Cannot stand the tobacco flavors in vaping. Uh, They, I find them revolting, and menthol is too much for my lungs. It makes me cough, makes me feel short of breath. So, what am I going to do? um, In the the, if it should a flavor ban be passed, you know, I was a smoker for twenty five years. You know, I come from a family of smokers. Uh, uh, It's is it. Um, it's entirely within the realm of possibility that I might return to cigarettes, you know, because I, I do enjoy my nicotine, and uh, for a variety of reasons, I am unable uh, to uh, sever myself from from the nicotine. So, um, I I find it that, that that type of like approach of uh, a, just a blanket ban is just so incredibly Orwellian um, and really goes flies in the face of a lot of the evidence out there. I mean, we, you know, we could talk about the study out of uh, San Francisco that showed that uh, the likelihood of smoking more than doubled among youth uh, following the banning of flavors there, you know, we can talk about Nova Scotia and uh, the big spike in smoking there. So it's really like, it's a, it's going to be a disastrous policy. Should it ever be passed?
0: Now that is true. And uh, mindful, I've got two more clips um, that I want to play and when I mean mindful, I mean mindful that, you know, it's not that I purposefully pulled these clips out in order to make Health Canada uh, look appealing in terms of their position, like that somehow soften up their position or anything like that. But as Maria said, I mean, and I said it at the start, there are some good nuggets of stuff in there. And the it's not like that there's d- dastardly stuff. So it's kind of strange the way that worked out. However, though, the last two clips, one is good, one is bad. Let me leave it at that. So let's start with the bad this is not a very good clip
3: one other point that i wanted to raise here as well was just to clarify in case it's not uh uh, widely uh known um is that uh, even if the government were to move forward with uh, proposing restrictions or putting in place restrictions with regards to flavors. Um, This would not apply to vaping products that uh, are submitted under the Food and Drugs Act for a therapeutic use. So for example, submitted for uh, a cessation aid. So I just wanted to highlight that that is an alternative avenue uh, for getting flavored vaping products uh, to adults who want to use them to help stop smoking.
0: All right, which one of you wants to take that on?
2: I'll take this on because this is my nightmare. (laughs) If you look at proposals that um, Smoke Free Physicians has put in and some other people, they are pushing for vaping to be removed from TVPA and become a non-consumer product. Vaping has always been available as a pharmaceutical product. There is a reason why. Organizations right now are now all of a sudden saying it should only be. There's always been that choice. Why has no one actually put one in a pharmacy? I have no problem if they're available at a convenience store, at a vape shop, and at a pharmacy. I say them. it's all about access, but you cannot remove the freedom that a Canadian has to be able to get that sense of community or that sense of familiarity where they're already getting their product, adding a pharmaceutical um, line to it, it's in, in addition, can only strengthen the image of vaping. And I do believe that pharmaceutical, the pharmaceutical industry is pushing for this product to be removed from TVPA, become a, a pharma product only because they still Because they do see the value of vaping. No matter what you want to say, everybody still sees it. But they want to control it. And I've said this so many times. Imagine, Try getting drugs right now from a pharmacy. You wait a half an hour to get your medicine and they spend three minutes with you. Remember that first time you walked into a vape shop and how long the vape shop owner spent with you. The pharmaceutical industry does not have the capacity, pharmacists do not have the capacity or the time to be able to help people through harm reduction. Although they say they do, there is something different when someone like me, when someone like Christina takes the time to listen and empathize because the best, because we've been there, we don't even have to try and put ourselves in someone else's shoes. We were in those shoes. Those are our shoes. So. You know what? Bullshit. You know? <laughs> go ahead. Go make your vape at the pharmacy. But what they're what they're trying to do is make it quit our way or die. We will control everything.
1: Right. So, just to add a little bit to what Maria just said, Um, I think the the obvious argument here is that if flavors can be added to a prescription vape device, uh, then clearly there's not a problem with flavors per se Um, in terms of a health perspective, uh, because that's also uh, uh, a red herring that's often bandied about that we don't know what these flavors can do uh, in terms of health, because really we do. Uh, What we know is that it's regardless of the flavor profile, it's always less harmful than smoking combustible tobacco. There's no doubt about that. And then uh, making it prescription only, of course, nobody's against uh, prescription devices. Absolutely. If anything, it just uh, reinforces the, uh, the legitimacy of the product and could help change a public perspective on it. However, removing it from a consumer perspective, from a consumer available uh, points of sale uh, is a disaster because tobacco is available everywhere everywhere and it makes no sense it would make about as much sense as saying that we can that for people who don't want to continue to eat fast food highly processed foods that they need to get a prescription from their doctor in order to eat get their their vegetable uh, like it makes no sense you should have those things available the safer less harmful options available, as long as the most harmful option continues to be sold as a consumer product, literally five minutes from anybody's doorstep. So it's just completely ridiculous. Um, And and the flavors of course are key because we see just like John Britton, I'm gonna paraphrase him now, John Britton makes it clear. uh, Anything that you do that reduces the efficacy or the palatability of vaping products to the consumers is in essence, uh, an endorsement and and uh, an encouragement to to more smoking, and that's it. That's all there is to it. Uh, so so um, I think that this is all a red herring. Prescription products are fine, and like Maria said, nobody's stopping them. Let them put out their prescription products, but by but that has nothing to do absolutely nothing to do with its availability as a consumer product and as a harm reduction device because uh, um, a medical product is going to make claims about cessation. But we're not only about cessation. Cessation happens to be a very, uh, very high compared to other NRTs and other prescription methods when it comes to vaping. There's no doubt about that. But even for those who don't quit or don't quit as fast as NRTs would want them to quit, as long as they're reducing their harm, that is a positive. That's like a, a keystone uh, factor in harm reduction approaches. Every improvement is something that's worth celebrating. So every reduction in smoking, every like, all of that stuff is like valuable to the person obviously whose life and whose health is at, uh, at play. And um, I just don't want us to get that twisted.
0: So this last clip goes to that point that you were just making, and it, it's Health Canada, you know, they, what, what they're about to say here is a bite that should be played on every news channel in Canada ad nauseum, uh, and that might just help a little. <laughs> it This needs to get out there.
4: We all know that tobacco products are harmful and that smoking is the leading uh, preventable cause of premature death and disease in Canada. The Government of Canada is committed to protecting the health of all Canadians, including helping them quit tobacco. I wanted to point out one of the things the Tobacco and Vaping Products Act did was create a legally defined category of vaping products. So we at Health Canada recognize uh, the potential of harm reduction to help people quit smoking, helping those who can't or won't quit using nicotine to identify less harmful options. Uh, While quitting smoking is the best thing you can do to improve your health, we recognize that for those people who smoke and completely switch to vaping, vaping is less harmful than smoking. Uh, We've said this in the public domain for several years now. Uh, Vaping products expose users to far fewer toxic chemicals and substances than conventional cigarettes. Uh, However, vaping is not harmless. While it has been with us for more than a decade, it's not a lot of time to generate the kind of evidence that would be needed to support a precise description of the relative risk. Uh, As well, the products have evolved, uh, and there is a lot of variation in the products and the way people use them. So vaping does have risks and the potential long-term effects of vaping remain unknown and continue to be assessed. This is one of the reasons that why we at Health Canada as well as our colleagues at the Canadian Institutes of Health Research established a scientific advisory board on vaping products. So this board is made up of experts in various disciplines who can speak to the scientific literature on the potential health benefits and harms of vaping products and then provide recommendations to us here at the department.
0: So there you go, that's our last thing. So let me just get a couple of points in, I'll hand it to Maria, we'll go to Christina, and we'll wrap this up for the viewers. So here's the deal, right? They created a legal category for vaping products. So vaping products are legal, but meanwhile, the hysteria around vaping is one that is, if it's an illegal product, it's not, it's legal. And health canada pretty much made it legal sure 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 the politicians are in charge but the bureaucrats are the experts and so you know they can't the bureaucrats can't just hand this off to the politician to go oh, we're just you know we're just providing the information and put them put the stuff in front of them and they make the decisions yeah but you're the experts and we all know how strongly experts are listened to in today's world so if it's legal um, then health, And Health Canada must have, take some responsibility for putting its stamp of approval on it. That means that we do know something about how risky it is. Otherwise, they created gross incompetence and misconduct by legalizing uh, a risky product. So that's what I'm going to throw out there.
1: Well, okay, if I could go first on that one, uh, Brent, uh, what you said uh, is actually really, uh, really key with regards to the experts and the sway that they have. Like, let's not forget that the that the risk, um, the RIAS—I forget what it stands for—the uh, <laughs> um, it has among many of, um, of the questionable information in it. it what Maria mentioned earlier, a a claim of uh, vaping being supposedly um, 20% of the harm of smoking, right? So 80% less harmful, where uh, most health authorities uh, peg it uh, at at most 5%. Um, So, you know, when you're looking at that, you're saying, well, you know, of course a politician, uh, they don't have that information. They're going to rely on on the people that uh, give them this information who are experts. So you have to start questioning how did they came up with how did they come up with this 20% by people who themselves have said that we never said anything like that. There's there's no uh, basis, there's no scientific basis for claiming a 20% um, uh, harm of, as compared to smoking. This is how they they get the, the politicians to agree because if they're in charge of providing them with the their expert assessment and the assessment is just not borne out by, by the science. You know, you can't really blame, I mean, we can blame the politicians for a lot, but you can't really blame them for that, you know? So,
0: totally. No, that's an excellent point. And Maria, to you on that, and I want you to also comment um, and just double down on the scientific advisory and the review that's coming up.
2: Okay. So, completely agree with what Christina said. So, I'm not going to repeat what she said, she said it well. And um, Scientific Advisory Board, I think it was just announced that they added someone new to that Scientific Advisory Board, Mike Pesco, if I'm not mistaken, who is on the other side of vaping, um, which is very interesting that they added him him to the Scientific Advisory Board. We just
0: had him on RegWatch two weeks ago.
2: Yeah, so there are some changes happening to that board where I'm hoping there will be more balance, like... You know, between the two sides. What was the second part of the question?
0: Sorry and well, and the review that's coming up. So, statute, oh, yeah. so, so that's huge. We're
2: looking 2022 is three years. There has to be a review. And I, I believe that we should be seeing um, stuff happening about that review in the next couple of weeks, hopefully before the end of the year. If not, probably in the new year. I do know that there is a push to reopen this at HESA. There, um, there's a petition coming out um, before the holidays. So it's gonna be 60 days. Again, we need to get this reviewed. And I, you know, in the heart of my heart is that how can they create such a dramatic, drastic um, regulation that doesn't sit well with at most Cana- almost all Canadians who use um, vaping products. How are they going to dump a regulation that would just destroy the, um, the path and the journey and the success that over a million Canadians have had whilst then saying, oh, well, we're going to review it. No, you need to pause on this regulation. Let's put it to the wayside, just like we did with the relative risk statements. If we pause the CG1 for flavors and never get to CG2, I promise you, Health Canada, I will never complain and ask where CG2 is for relative risk. We'll just say they're together in their own little home and we're gonna wait for that review and we're going to do something about it. Also, I just really need to say this. There's a guy on um, YouTube, Yukon Striker. If you are the consumer from the Yukon that always submits on every single submission, every single petition, every single thing that we do for advocacy in Canada as Rights for Vapors, thank you. You are so far away, but can I tell you, you are so close and you're a part of like the biggest community and your voice matters just as much as, and if not more than the millions of people in the Southern part of this country, because I tell you, I have a smile on my face when I see Yukon pop up on one of those maps and also when Nunavut comes up. So I'm not sure who you are, if that's you, Yukon striker, I'm just assuming, I'm making assumptions, might not be a good assumption, but yeah.
0: Well, there you go. Well, thank you very much for coming on uh, the show today.
2: Oh, you're welcome. I appreciate you. you